Welcome to Old Treasures Made New, your devotional podcast on the go or at home where we read the scriptures and reflect on them with those from the past. Today we'll be reading Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 28, and then through J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts on Mark. Please take a moment to pause and to ask the Holy Spirit to bring understanding and to apply what we hear. Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 28. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to them, Look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. These verses set before us a remarkable scene in our Lord Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. We see our blessed Master and his disciples going through the grain fields on the Sabbath day. We are told that his disciples, as they went, began to pluck heads of grain. At once we hear the Pharisees accusing them to our Lord, as if they had committed some great moral offense. Why are they doing that which is not lawful on the Sabbath day? They received an answer full of deep wisdom, which all should study well, who desire to understand the subject of Sabbath observance. We see from these verses what extravagant importance is attached to trifles by those who are mere formalists in religion. The Pharisees were mere formalists, if there ever were any in the world. They seemed to have thought exclusively of the outward part, the husk, the shell, the ceremonial of religion. They even added to these externals by traditions of their own. Their godliness was made up of washings and fastings, and particularities about dress and will worship, while repentance and faith and holiness were comparatively overlooked. The Pharisees would probably have found no fault if the disciples had been guilty of some offense against the moral law. They would have winked at covetousness, or perjury, or exhortions, or excess, because there were sins to which they themselves were inclined. But no sooner did they see an infringement on their man-made traditions about the right way of keeping the Sabbath than they raised an outcry and found fault. Let us watch and pray lest we fall into the same error of the Pharisees. They are never lacking professors who walk in their steps. There are thousands at the present day who plainly think more of the mere outward ceremonial of religion than of its doctrines. They make more ado about keeping saints' days and turning to the East in the creed and bowing at the name of Jesus than about repentance or faith or separation from the world. Against this spirit, let us ever be on our guard. It can neither comfort, satisfy, nor save. It ought to be a settled principle in our minds that a man's soul is in a bad state when he begins to regard man-made rites and ceremonies as things of superior importance and exalts them above the preaching of the gospel. It is a symptom of spiritual disease. There is mischief within. It is too often the resource of an uneasy conscience. The first steps of apostasy from Protestantism to Romanism 
have often been in this direction. No wonder that Paul said to the Galatians, You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I have may have labored over you in vain. Galatians 4, 10-11 We see in the second place from these verses the value of a knowledge of Holy Scripture. Our Lord replies to this accusation of the Pharisees by a reference to Holy Scripture. He reminds his enemies of the conduct of David when he was in need and was hungry. Have you never read what David did? They could not deny that the writer of the book of Psalms and the man after God's own heart was not likely to set a bad example. They knew, in fact, that he had not turned aside from God's commandment all the days of his life, except only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite, 1 Kings 15.5. Yet what had David done? He had gone into the house of God when pressed with hunger and eaten the showbread which is not lawful to eat but for the priests. He had thus shown that some requirement of God's laws might be relaxed in case of necessity. To this scripture example, our Lord refers his adversaries. They found nothing to reply to it. The sword of the Spirit was a weapon which they could not resist. They were silenced and put to shame. Now the conduct of our Lord on this occasion ought to be a pattern to all his people. Our grand reason for our faith and practice should always be, thus it is written in the Bible. What says the scriptures? We should endeavor to have the word of God on our side in all debatable questions. We should seek to be able to give a scriptural answer for our behavior in all matters of dispute. We should refer our enemies to the Bible as our rule of conduct. We shall always find a plain text, the most powerful argument we can use. In a world like this, we must expect our opinions to be attacked if we serve Christ, and we may be sure that nothing silences adversaries so soon as a quotation from Scripture. Let us, however, remember that if we are to use the Bible as our Lord did, we must know it well and be acquainted with its contents. We must read it diligently, humbly, perseveringly, prayerfully, or we shall never find its text coming to our aid in the time of need. To use the sword of the Spirit effectually, we must be familiar with it and have it often in our hands. There is no royal road to the knowledge of the Bible. It does not come to man by intuition. The book must be studied, pondered, prayed over, searched into, and not left always lying on a shelf or carelessly looked at now and then. It is the students of the Bible, and they alone, who will find it a weapon ready in hand in the day of battle. We see in the last place from these verses the true principle by which all questions about the observance of the Sabbath ought to be decided. The Sabbath, says our Lord, was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. There is a mine of deep wisdom in these words. They deserve close attention, and the more so because they are not recorded in any gospel but that of Mark. Let us see what they contain. The Sabbath was made for man. God made it for Adam in paradise and renewed it to Israel on Mount Sinai. It was made for all mankind, not for the Jews only, but for the whole family of Adam. It was made for man's benefit and happiness. It was for the good of his body, the good of his mind, and the good of his soul. It was given to him as a benefit and a blessing, and not as a burden. This was the original institution. 
But man was not made for the Sabbath. The observance of the day of God was never meant to be so enforced as to be an injury to his health or to interfere with his necessary requirements. The original command to keep holy the Sabbath day was not intended to be so interpreted as to do harm to his body or prevent acts of mercy to his fellow creatures. This was the point that the Pharisees had forgotten or buried under their traditions. There is nothing in all this to warrant the rash assertion of some that our Lord has done away with the fourth commandment. On the contrary, he manifestly speaks of the Sabbath day as a privilege and a gift, and only regulates the extent to which its observance should be enforced. He shows that works of necessity and mercy may be done on the Sabbath day, but he says not a word to justify the notion that Christians need not remember the day to keep it holy. Let us be jealous over our own conduct in the matter of observing the Sabbath. There is little danger of the day being kept too strictly in this present age. There is far more danger of its being profaned and entirely forgotten. Let us contend earnestly for its preservation among us in its, all its integrity. We may rest assured that national prosperity and personal growth in grace are intimately bound up in the maintenance of a holy Sabbath. That is the end of Rao's expository thoughts for these verses. Let us carefully consider what we have heard today, and may the Lord be pleased to bring the growth for His glory. In considering what we've just heard, would you prayerfully ask yourself and others the following questions? 1. Do we care more about outward religiosity, more than sound doctrine and believing it from the heart? Second, are we students of the Bible? Are we growing in our knowledge of what it says? Are we hiding God's word in our hearts that we might not sin against him? It is a large book and it can feel daunting, but the journey of a thousand miles is only accomplished one step at a time. And lastly, on the issue of keeping the Sabbath, we ought to wrestle and pray. Does our practice come out of convenience or, like the previous point, biblical understanding and conviction?